We're excited to launch in. You know, we, we heard feedback and we are taking the feedback. And the feedback was twofold. Number one, one-off classes are great, but people want to dive in deeper, dive in deeper to learning material where we can have a, a learning series. That's why I launched my 40 class series on the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history. That's why we just had a 10-part series on the thought of Rav Cook, And that's why we have this 10-part series as well. The second piece of feedback that we heard is that more people wanted to think about inner life. There's so much complexity in outer life and economics and politics and religion and community matters. And people want to think about inner life, character, spirituality, personal growth. And many people think that's just about self-help books. Nothing against self-help books, but it is also a part of Judaism, how we ourselves grow and learn to be more humble and courageous and kind and compassionate and all of those things. And so we are thrilled to launch into this 10 part series. Anytime you miss one of these, anytime you miss one of these, just email us. We will always have the recording. If you like it on video, if you like it on podcast, it'll be on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else you wanna find it. So we are thrilled to be here with Rabbi Lauren Berman, originally from Los Angeles, where he was a successful teen actor and currently based in Philadelphia. Lauren is the East Coast and Mountain West Regional Jewish Educator for Moisha House and Engagement Associate at Safaria. Over the years, his education has taken him to Yeshivat Chobavei Torah, Pardes, Drisha, Hadar, and Yeshivat Har Etzion. I am particularly looking forward to this one because Musar is my favorite type of Torah to learn about how we become better human beings, more menches, and because Rabbi Lauren Berman, as I have known for some time, also shares that passion of learning and teaching Musar. So uh, Rabbi Berman, thank you for being here and the floor is all yours. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, for inviting me to do this series and to everybody uh, from near and far who's shown up. I know today is Yom HaShoah, so um, I just want to name that and know that, that while I might bring a certain energy uh, to today's session, um, you know, many of us are, are quite sad uh, today, and this, this might be a, a respite um, in, in one sense or another, but just want to name that today is Yom HaShoah, um, and so we are all maybe in different places emotionally. Um, I want to start with a bit about my own Musar journey. Um, Musar, Musar, depends how you want to pronounce it, um, which just for now, um, we'll define as the Jewish art of self-improvement of character development piece by piece, trait by trait. And we could define the word Musar as ethics, discipline, instruction, perhaps even something that's given over. And Musar is something I began studying and to a limited extent, admittedly, practicing just a few years ago in the middle of rabbinical school. I was studying halakha, Jewish law, all day, every day. And Quite frankly, it was really tough. Um, I did make it through. I did make it through, thank God. Um, but it was tough. And, and quite frankly, it wasn't always so exciting. And I felt myself at times just really slaving through my studies rather than approaching them with some level of enthusiasm and alacrity, or uh, in Hebrew, we would call that zirizut, zirizut. Um, when I struggled, I found I was beating myself up practicing neither kindness towards myself or chesed, nor savlanut, which we can translate as, as patience. And most of all, and this actually applied, I think, across the board for me, um, both professionally and personally, I was really having trouble making meaning of it all, actually learning something deep um, to carry me forward from these experiences. There was a time in my life when I, when I read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, and, and it, I feel like that's a great Musar work, um, actually, uh, in a lot of ways, finding meaning um, in the suffering um, as, as a way to keep us going. But I was having trouble, at least at this time in my life, really applying that to my life. Um, and then somebody asked me to be their chavruta and to study introductory, introductory Jewish texts about self-improvement. And you would think that after a few years of rabbinical study, a few years in yeshiva, um, I would know something. And the truth is, is, First of all, the chavruta did not last, um, but I, I really did not know where to start. Um, these texts were just not ones I was familiar with. And so I had been learning you know, halakha, but not so much about self-improvement. Um, 
I didn't know how to help this person. Um, and I also didn't quite know how to help myself. So the topic did interest me. So I reached out to my colleague, Rabbi Justin Pines. I'm not sure if the, the uh, Valley Beit Midrash has had him. He is a wonderful teacher and scholar. And he opened my eyes to the study of Musar, primarily focusing on the more recent works um, of Musar by individuals like Rav Shlomo Wolby, 20th century uh, Israel, uh, Alan Marinus, uh, Rabbi D uh, David Jaffe, who are, who are both still alive in, in North America. And I've loved, I've loved studying Musar and practicing it to the extent that I can focus. And one thing I know, and with this I'll begin, there's much more I, that I don't know about Musar than I do. I'll be very clear about that. There's much more I don't know than I do know. Yeah, okay, like the more you know, the more you don't know, fine. But really, uh, that's how I feel. Um, and so this exploration together over the next 10 weeks is really gonna be a learning experience for us all. Um, if there's something I don't know, um, a question you have, then I'm gonna go look it up. And I, I wanna learn just as much as I hope as we all wanna learn um, in this group. Um, in fact, that perhaps is a way of expressing the midah that we're going to be uh, looking at in a little bit today. Uh, maybe not a midah or a character trait so much as a mindset um, called hit lamdut, hit lamdut, and we're gonna get there. It's more of a modern Hebrew word. Um, it, you know, the word mitzlamed literally means to, to teach oneself or to, to be an ongoing learner. Um, this mindset of being a self-aware learner, um, this is the, the, the mindset that Musar asks us to first adopt before even entering anything, you know, even, you know, remotely connected to working on certain traits of anger and patience and humility and the like. Before jumping in uh, to this practice of Hilam Dut, which again is thought to be one of the prereqs for any study or practice of Musar, we should understand a little bit about the history of Musar. I happen to not be a student of history. Uh, as my mother can attest, uh, history was never my strong suit. And I have a hard time connecting sometimes the past to the present um, and making you know, sense of all these facts that happen and, and really sort of creating some you know, schema. Um, but I hope some people here are good at that because um, we're just gonna spend a few minutes on, on a bit of history. Um, Musar is experiencing a renaissance uh, right now. You can see my screen, correct? Great. Musar is experiencing a renaissance right now, but it's far from new. Um, before this you know, recharge of Musar came the Musar movement, which had its seeds planted in the mid-19th century, so about 200 years ago. And moving backwards further in time, we go to the 10th century with thinkers like Sadja Gaon, who offer suggestions for moral living and the need for harmony and purity within a person. We have Rabbeinu Bachia, uh, 11th century, who wrote Chovot Halevavot, uh, which similarly outlines uh, these two primary modes of living Torah. One is through the limbs, Chovot Ha'ivarim, which are like the physical action-based mitzvot or commandments or, or ritual practices. And then there are those of the heart, Chovot Ha'levavot, um, the obligations, the duties of the heart, um, more closely aligned with conscious and intellect, that in order to serve God, we have to really both combine the physical, we have to do things, we have to feel things and think things, we also need to do things. And these works and many, many, many others, maybe you've heard of Mesilat Yesharim uh, by the Ramchal, uh, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, um, several hundred years later in the, 18, in the 18th century, I believe, right? They all took Torah in Talmudic texts and developed them from maybe general ideas or advice into a system of ethics and behavior. And it wasn't until the 19th century. So just in terms of where we are on this, this map here, right? These are the sort of the early, perhaps pre-modern uh, works. And then once we get here, we're in the 19th century um, and to the right. And that's really what we're gonna be focusing on in our time together. In the 19th century, um, we have the initiative and the creativity of Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin of Salant, also known as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Uh, he really started Musar as a movement, one that wasn't restricted to private learning of texts, right? And maybe even some you know, application, right? But, but something that we could actually do as a group, as a group with a very regimented system, each according to their ways. Um, but it was no longer a solitary activity. He actually began studying in seclusion. Of course, that's sort of the tradition he inherited, but he realized that his, he had a special gift. He had a gift. Um, he was, I mean, of course, a very wise scholar, but also very inspiring and charismatic. He had potential for a higher purpose uh, and impact. Um, he was one of the early, as I said, thought and practice leaders of the closest thing to how Musar is practiced today. 
or how we strive to practice it today. And the general line of thinking and the motivation behind Rav Salantra's work was the following. Something like Gemara, Talmudic learning, that's great, amazing, keep it up, don't, don't stop, that's great. But without Musar, without Musar, without this active focus on one's character of improving and perfecting their character, the whole project of Torah is lacking. That's a debate we could have. Is Torah enough? We're going to see it. We see that shortly, right? Otherwise, our learning is just mechanical. It's vain, right? Among other things, Rav Salanta was responding to a critique of, of the state of religious affairs brought on by the Enlightenment thinkers. They accused the religious of, of, of hypocrisy, of corruption, right? No real application of Torah to a modern world, right? They might know a lot about text, but they don't know a lot, a lot about character. Rav Salanta sought to launch a countermeasure. Musar was made for modern people. Musar presented one's improvement and ethical behavior as a lifelong goal. He systematized the Jewish ethical tradition, encouraged regimented focus and reflection in groups. He sought to integrate it as a part of a yeshiva curriculum, right? It was part of a curriculum. Um, it wasn't just an add-on. Um, originally, his intention was to work you know, with local communities, um, but he turned to yeshivas who were more receptive. They were the younger ones, more impressionable. Um, but he also went and spoke to business people and people out on the streets. Um, he would give lectures to them. Um, just as much as yeshiva students, business people also need to learn about ethics, um, I would hope and think. And he, and he saw that. Just a few more words about uh, Rabbi Sorel Salanter. He focused on a practice of kvishat and tikkun hamidot, of conquering these bitter traits or tendencies and correcting or refining these traits. Both are important in the process of self-discipline. He emphasized the staying power of habit, both for good and for bad, right? I, I can habituate myself to do something good and I can habituate myself to do something bad. And each of those might be harder to overcome one or the other, but that's something to think about. And he moved, one, one really big thing he did, he moved um, or he transplanted, I guess, the Yetzer Hara, which I know modern Musar thinkers you know, won't translate it as evil inclination, but just for simplicity's sake, let's call it the evil inclination uh, for, for self-gratification and the like. He moved it from some outside force pushing me in one direction or another, and he moved it inside. It was closest perhaps to you know, what, what Freud would call the unconscious, right? It, that the Yetzer Hara, whatever this inclination is, is deeply internal. And that's something I think we should think about in terms of like, how do we struggle? How do we overcome urges that we have, right? To do bad, if we were gonna call it bad, right? To go against our values. If it's something coming from the outside, maybe there's a certain way to engage with it. But if it's something on the inside, maybe it requires some sort of compassion, right? Because it's, out, it's inside of me, I can't get rid of it, right? I can't, right? Like inside, it's inside of me, you better sort of like, we live together now. So I guess we have to figure out how to do that. Um, so there's a practical ramification for how do we actually work on ourselves, whether we see the Yetzer Hara, this inclination, this evil inclination as coming from outside um, or versus um, you know, coming in. And lastly, one of the great innovations um, included the importance of truly taking teachings to heart, so that Torah study is not an academic endeavor, right? That there are, and there are practical ways of really you know, moving the Torah from merely study to actually moving it you know, sort of into our hearts. Right, practicing mantras. Uh, we think of maybe that is like a new age thing. Um, it's not. Um, of course, it, it you know predates, I believe, Rav Salanter and other religious traditions. Um, but as far as I know, in the Jewish tradition, he was uh, certainly one who popularized uh, mantras. Um, he would he would suggest that when you would come across a text that really spoke to you, you like you sing it, right? Um, you sing it. You repeat it. Um, he 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 uh, practiced journaling. Always encouraged people to journal a lot. To, to have visualizations, visualize the world as I see it now, or myself as I see myself now, and visualize myself as how I wanna be, or visualize myself as how I want the world to be. And I know in my, my psychology studies, I remember reading a study, I think it was a meta-analysis by a Professor Baumeister, if I, if I recall correctly, it was a while ago, that actually shows that when you actually envision something in the future, you doing something in the future, your performance will actually improve. So if I you know, envision myself doing you know, 15 pull-ups, you know, or 20 pull-ups before I do that, I'm going to get closer to that number than I would have otherwise. Um, 
So that's something to think about when we really visualize um, ourselves um, doing anything, including self-change, um, how that actually opens up possibilities for that to be a fulfilling prophecy. Last but not least, between a person and another person, interpersonal meets vote for him, we're part and parcel of between us and God. There are so many stories, which we're not going to get into now, um, but perhaps in the future, if there's time, where you would see him prioritize the well-being of others over some ritual stringency. For example, he was known to not use too much water when he was washing his hands. He would use just the minimal amount, which, by the way, the Talmud says is like a very bad thing to do. I'm not saying that. That's just I'm only saying that to highlight how radical Rav Salanter was here, Rav Yisrael Salanter. He would use the minimum amount to wash his hands. And people said, what are you doing? Don't you know the Talmud? He's like, of course I know the Talmud. And I also know that I know how this water got here. We didn't have, you know, they didn't have faucets back then. Somebody would literally have to go and fetch the water. You know, a maid would have to go fetch the water and bring it. And he didn't want to overburden this person. So he would use as, min you know, as, as, as little water as necessary. That was one, um, you know, one example of a story of, of Rishal Salanter, which I find myself to be very inspired by. And another one was, um, he was giving a lecture. I believe he was giving a lecture and the details to me are fuzzy, but he cut the lecture. He like was very efficient with his lecture. And they said, the people that were all at the lecture, they said, well, why are you so efficient? And why are you so short? Like, you know, we have an hour, like let's, let's use up the whole hour. Um, and, and he said, he said, well, I also know that the people here, you know, there's a cobbler here, right? And there's a cook here, right? And there's a tailor here, right? All of you all are right now not doing work and you have to make a living. And so I don't want to be taking you away from making your living. And also other people here are customers of yours. And I'm thereby, by doing this Torah study with you, I'm taking away further business. So let me give you the lessons you need to know, but let me not overdo it, right? This, I think, very radical perspective um, again, not only a, a modern take with Scheihold, you know, uh, will say, uh, you know, if you want to love God, love, if you want to show your love for God, you know, love, who, love those who God loves. Right. Um, you know, in that spirit, I think Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, um, really, really embodied that, that between us and, and our fellows are actually not necessarily separate from between us and God. In fact, when we honor the dignity of others, we're actually honoring God. Um, that's perhaps the the from version of it. Uh, maybe there's another version which might argue, no, actually, Rabbi Saral Salanter said one is more important or trumps the other within, you know, a certain, you know, within certain parameters. Alas, the Musar movement did not really pick up um, by the time Rav Salanter died. There's a story about his son. His son was a, became a scientist and he got a lot of flack for that. And his grand, and actually a very famous scientist. I think there's like a, a certain parallelogram named like the Salant parallelogram or something like that, named after his son, who was actually a very successful uh, mathematician, I believe. Um, grandchildren, you know, they don't know what happened, but I will tell you, I will tell you a story, my own story. And actually where I first heard about Rabbi Saro Salanter, and that was in college. In college, I had a psychology TA, last name, Salant. And I remember I, I wore a keep at the time and, 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 he, and we were meeting in office hours and he said to me, he's like, oh, you, you said you're Jewish, you're, you're observant. I said, yeah, you know, I guess I'm, I'm on my journey um, at the time. And he said, my, you know, great, great, great grandfather, he was the founder of something, you know, the, the Musar movement, uh, you know, Rabbi Israel Salanter. And I, to me, that meant nothing. And then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, so for anybody who thinks that his descendants are all gone, I'm here to tell you, his descendants are here. Um, thank God. Um, okay, so the movement didn't really take off. Right? But his students really helped carry it forward. Um, yeshivas like Navardic, Slobodka, the Kelm Yeshiva, and each of these had different orientations. And I, I want to highlight this. Um, it is because it, it, it will come in with our learning together. Um, Ravi Sarasalantar, he wasn't a pluralist. Well, no, I would say he was a pluralist when it comes to Musar, insofar as there were lines for him, but he believed that there's no one size fits all for improving ourselves and our characteristics and our character. There's no one size fits all. And that's actually reflected, I think, in the diversity of schools that emerge of Musar. This school of Kelm was very organized, very disciplined, 
right? We need to restrain ourselves and tame ourselves, right? The, that's one model. Maybe that's you, maybe it's not. Maybe you're someone who needs more order in your life and more focus, right? The Slobodki Yeshiva said, no, man is so great. Humans are so great. We need to achieve our potential, right? Once we elevate ourselves, right? Actualize our greatness, that will deter us from going off the path. Um, a more perhaps uh, um, in psychology, we would call it a, a, a promotion um, rather than prevention model where I'm, I'm seeking the good. And the other, the Novartic says, whoa, no, no, actually humans are a dangerous thing, right? We're actually quite low. Um, we, we sin all the time, self-indulgence. And what we need to do is destroy that ego, destroy that ego. Do we sort of add more light to the darkness or do we try and like just destroy the darkness um, itself? Um, so I would ask you to think about um, no need to answer now, but to think about like which of these yeshivas would have been good for you? Are you somebody who needs to be reminded of your greatness? Are you somebody who needs to be reminded that, hey, you're not so great? And are you somebody, and it's not mutually exclusive, are you somebody who, who really needs to just focus right now and you just things are all over the place and, and, uh, and a little discipline could go a long way? You think about which, which school fits you. Um, but the point is that there is a place for you in Musar, um, that we could all, we could all use it in, in one sense um, or another. There's no one Musar, and that's how Rav Yisrael uh, Salanter interpreted, uh, how, how we intended it. So we just like a little bit of a, a broad overview, and it's because it's our first session, um, a little broad, broad overview of Rav Yisrael Salanter. Here are some of the traits that, that he would suggest focusing on, uh, patience, generosity, as you can see on the screen, uh, gratitude, compassion, humility, order, equanimity, simplicity, enthusiasm, joy, silence, forgiveness, truth, moderation, loving kindness, responsibility, trust, honor, awe. So many traits. And this is not an exhaustive list. Um, some of the common ones we're going we're gonna to study together. But why? Rabbi Sarah was answering the question of Torah is not enough. Torah is not enough. We need something else in order to actually move from knowing what Torah is to being able to live Torah, um, to actually move, Kant actually, he uses some Kantian language. I remember in college reading Kant and, uh, and you know, sort of say like, well, we know what ethics are, but what's to push us to actually live them out, right? I can look at a building and say, that's a beautiful building, but does that make me a builder? No, um, I can look at a beautiful piece of food and uh, does that make me uh, Michael Salmanov or uh, you know, Emerald Lagasse? No, um, how do I move from knowing what um, to actually, you know, being able to embody, embody something, moving from recognizing to actually embodying. So just to, to frame why it's necessary, uh, we're not going to go into the text here, but the Ramban, Nachmanides, uh, on a, he has a, a relatively well-known in yeshiva circles comment uh, on Kedoshim Tihiyu, the, the commandment to be holy. And he essentially says is that there's only so much there's only so much the Torah can say in words, right? There has to be some room for a generalized commandment to just be a good person. Cause like, I can't actually put into words all the different things and all the permutations and all the different cases. Um, it's just not possible in a limited work. And so because of that, without a verse to tell me to just be holy, go the extra mile, even when you're in an ambiguous situation, go the extra mile, Otherwise, people would be what he calls the Navab Shura Torah. You would be a scoundrel within the confines or within, you know, with permission of the Torah. There's a way to read the Torah, to even be a, uh, an observant person, an observant Jew in this case, and still be a scoundrel, right? Um, it's, I mean, you could say in, in a sense, like it's a, you know, you could say it's good pill pull or a good, you know, a good lawyer could really make any case for anything. Could those seem to you is to tell us, actually there's something that's not written here that we need to actually understand. We have to be holy. There's an extra, extra something that the Torah just doesn't include in and of itself. Because if we just lived according to the very, very strict, you know, letter of the law, we could get away with more things than we should. So that's one sort of explanation for why Torah need something like Musar, or rather why Torah is not necessarily enough on its own. Um, the Vilna Gaon, um, in, a, in, a, in a verse describing the Torah as rain falling on us, he explains that rain is sort of indiscriminate, right? Rain will fall where rain will fall. If it falls, you know, on, a, uh, on, on you know, on, a, on wheat, 
you know, where wheat is sown, then rain will cause the wheat to grow. That's great. But what if there's poison? What if, it, what if it's a poisonous plant? Then, then rain will also grow the poisonous plant. Um, so again, and this is, in his, this is what Torah is. Um, as another quote from Rav Shai, Rav Shai held that uh, religion can make good people better and bad people worse without making a binary, right? Torah can be, can be, can be a samachayim samamav. It can be, can be something for good, something for bad. Mm. Mm. And then lastly is, uh, is the nitziv. Uh, 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 Naftali Svi Yehuda Berlin, um, he, uh, on a, in, in the introduction to his commentary, he's referring to a book, a verse in Deuteronomy, explains something very fascinating. He says, I'll just read it. I'll just read the text for us. The Jews of the time were righteous and pious and toiled in the Torah, but they were not straight in the ways of the world. Yashar. He's talking about the, sec- the generation of the second temple when it was destroyed. As a result, because of the groundless or baseless hatred, we probably know this word, sinat chinam, because of the sinat chinam in their hearts, when they saw someone who acted contrary to their views on God, fearing behavior, they suspected them of being a Sadducee or a heretic. This eventually led to blood being spilled in every possible calamity until the temple was destroyed. And this divine verdict is justified, meaning the destruction of the temple is justified in the above mentioned verse where it says that God is straight and righteous, right? For the Holy One is straight and does not tolerate such, I would say, quote unquote, righteous men, righteous people. God favors only those righteous people who are also straight in the ways of the world, but not those who go on crooked paths, even if they do so for the sake of heaven, even if they do it, l'shem shamayim, for this causes the desolation of creation and the destruction of civilization. Even if you know all of Torah, perhaps especially when you know all of Torah or think you know all of Torah, even if you feel completely justified in saying that person is not not a kosher yid, not a kosher Jew, right? That person's a heretic out of the community. That's actually where we need to be most careful. When we know too much, um, this isn't to say that we shouldn't learn all of Torah. We certainly should, but we are very susceptible when we know too much to be too confident in ourselves and actually lead to destruction. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating teaching. Okay, so we've gone through a little bit of introduction. What is Musar? Why Musar? Or at least, again, I haven't quite made the case that Musar is the answer, and I'm not going to make the case that Musar is the answer. I assume that you're here, so you're interested in Musar. Um, and I don't make truth claims in general anyways. It's just not, it's not my way. Um, so let us, um, let us begin. Let us begin with our first Midah. Um, or our first, I don't actually really, I don't know if we'll call it a Midah. Because by the, you know, the individual who, create, who really uh, popularized it, uh, he didn't call it a midah either. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about Rav Shlomo Wolby. Rav Shlomo Wolby. Wolby used to be Wilhelm. He was born in Berlin. Uh, as you see here, 1914 to 2005, he died. Uh, he died in Israel. Um, he's known for a number of his works. Um, but... The one that we're going to be discussing, and the one quite frankly that I know <laughs> somewhat, is Ale Shore. It's called Ale Shore. And um, again, 20th century, born in Berlin. He, in terms of his own biography, now this is a biography I actually care about, and I actually think is interesting. Um, he didn't grow up religious. He was not an observant Jew. He went to university. Sometimes university will make you not religious. Sometimes in this case, he became more religious. He became a Baal Tshuva uh, through, you know, outreach organizations. And then he learned in different places in Europe. Um, in fact, I believe he was actually, I don't know if we would call him a refugee, um, but he went to, to live in, in Sweden, I believe, for some period of time um, uh, when the Nazis um, were, I, I believe, it, you know, it, to escape the Nazis. Um, there's a Wikipedia article about it. I have not looked at it in some time. Um, but there's a, a Yom HaShoah a tie-in, uh, certainly. Um, he learned in, the, in the, the, Mir, the famous Mir Yeshiva, and eventually in 1946, he moves to Mandatory Palestine, 
He goes on to become a major mashkiach, not the kosher certifier, but the more spiritual uh, advisor uh, in Jerusalem and in Israel. Um, he's somebody who's very learned, not only in Torah, but in secular psychology, in secular studies in general. He refers to Aristotle. Uh, sometimes, I don't think he refers to him by name, um, but he quotes Aristotle in Ali Shore I've seen. Um, I, even, I hear that his bathroom was full, stocked, probably a toilet paper, but also of secular psychology books. That was, that was what he read. Um, that was what he read. And so his approach to Musar, I would say, is not something that you need to like fully buy into a certain theology for. With Musar, sometimes there's like a the very strong theology. Yes, um, he does advocate emunah and yirah, faith or, or loyalty and, 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 and awe of heaven, of God. Um, but I would say a lot of his suggestions are quite sound and maybe we can see that for ourselves shortly um, and probably in line with, with you know, modern psychology. Um, and just another fun fact, he would actually go to secular kibbutzim. He was an Orthodox man, um, but he would go to secular kibbutzim um, and talk to people, you know, share with them, I guess you could say the gospel of Musar. It's not so common to have somebody like him go to somewhere like that. I mean, they invited him, they wanted him there. So you can tell that this is a very, a very unique, um, a very unique person. Um, he introduces this concept of Hitlam Dut. Of Hitlamdut. So, what is Hitlamdut? Here's how a couple of people will translate it. So, Rabbi Schellepelt's Weinberg, um, she explains it as cultivating awareness, sometimes called curiosity, investigation, or beginner's mind. If there's one thing I want us to take away from today, it's that line, or at least the last two words of that line beginner's mind. Hitlam dude is a mindset that tells me, reminds me that I'm a beginner. I'm practicing. I'm always practicing. That doesn't mean I'm bad at something. That is, it's not, it's not self-deprecating. It just means I have more to learn. I have something to learn. Rabbi David Jaffe. So again, beginner's mind. Hitlam dude, I think there's one thing to take away, beginner's mind. Rabbi David Jaffe, uh, with whom I study every other week uh, in, a, in, a, in a very wonderful fellowship, uh, the Inside Out Wisdom uh, uh, Fellowship. And he has also written a book. Um, maybe he's spoken here as well um, about his book, which is like applying Musar to social change and social action. He says, Hitlamdut is the practice of cultivating a stance of non-judgmental curiosity. Couldn't we use some of that today, huh? Non-judgmental curiosity towards our experiences in making what we learn deeply impact our lives. It's noticing, it's being curious, it's applying. I notice, I wanna see more, and then I say, how does that actually impact my life? And we're gonna see practically what that looks like. The mitlamed, literally the person who, is, who, is, who is, has this beginner's mind, who's learning all the time, adopts the stance of a learner constantly asking, what is happening right now? How can I learn from this? And how does this relate to my life? One of the dangers of Musar, and this is a, a quote, uh, really paraphrasing Rav Wolby, is that the practitioner can become overly judgmental of herself and others who are not working as actively on self-improvement. As well, the opposite. If I feel like I've achieved, right, and I've gotten there, I might become arrogant, right? It reminds me that actually there's more to go. And, it, and when I fail, it reminds me, that's okay. I'm still practicing. Kind of goes both ways. Adopting a stance of a learner toward of being a lamed towards being a learner towards one's own character development softens the judgment and turns all our practice into growth opportunities. All of our practice into growth opportunities. That's what Hitlam Dut is about. And um, there's a story that Ravwobi, I believe, went to his students and said, you know, what's the most important you know, what's the most important midah? What's the most important thing I've taught you? You say patience. You say, no, humility. No, you know, uh, equanimity, generosity. And he says, you are not my students. You can't be my students. If there's one thing I sought to teach you, it was hitlam dut. That's something you can do your whole life. If there's one thing you're going to practice your whole life, it's got to, it's, it's hitlam dut. This is it. So 
If you're only here for one set, I welcome you to come for all 10 sessions that we're going to have together. But if this is the only session you're going to be at, this is the one you want to be at. Heat Lamdut, beginner's mindset, perhaps the only thing we really, really need to work on if there's going to be one thing. Um, so what does this actually look like? As I mentioned, why is it important? It's important because there are times when if we get to a certain place, we might think, oh, like, you know, I got this. I'll speak personally, like there were times in my life where I overcame a certain hurdle. Um, you know, when I was into the Victor, when I was into Victor Frankl, I said, oh, I can make meaning out of anything. And I was like on fire. And like for everybody else, how could you not make meaning out of things? How could you not? Like, yo, you just need more willpower. That I think I was guilty of the guy on the left, right? I've achieved. And so, you know, anyone, you know, this journey wasn't so hard. Everyone should be able to do it. Um, Hilam Dut reminds me actually, hey, you might, you know, be that, you know, shadow, that buff shadow, you know, that's a lot larger than you are. Um, but there's a lot more to go. Um, and then other, and, 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 and the, on the other side, if I do fail, if I do fail, then it says, okay, like, that's all right. Like, it's, you know, my first day at work, like it happens. Like we all make mistakes. There's more to learn. Um, great. So what does it mean? What does it actually mean in practice, heat lamdu, to actually be a begin, you know, to be a beginner, to be always practicing, to be always learning. So Pirkei Avot, which might be quoted a lot, might not be, but let me tell you, this is the most beautiful text, I think, um, that we're about to look at. Pirkei Avot, chapter four, uh, Mishnah one, says Benzoma Omer, Benzoma says, he says a few things in this line, right? Who is, you know, who was happy, who was rich, who was strong, uh, sorry, not who's happy, just who's rich, who's strong. Um, Benzoma says, Ezehu Chacham. Who is the Chacham? Who is the wise one? Alomed Mikol Adam. The one who learns from every person. Let's notice a few things here. First of all, Benzoma doesn't have a title. That's an, not everybody in Pirkei Avot has a title anyways. But as far as I know, he never really had a title. So I think it's fascinating with somebody without a title teaching us about wisdom. Usually we think the ones with the titles, they're the ones that, you know, oh, he's a rabbi, he's a doctor, she's, you know, she's a professor or whatever, master, uh, sensei. Uh, they're the, the ones with the titles, the ones who have to teach us something. I think it's fascinating that Benzoma here, not, 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 only, not only does he not have a title, I'm just thinking this now, not only does he not have a title, but he, he doesn't have his, like he's Benzoma, the son of Zoma. He's not even his own person fully. Um, I think it's just like a very interesting thing to see. Who are the ones that teach us? The ones sometimes who, who are, are more hidden, the ones who don't have titles, um, the ones who are in relationship with others, not only themselves, Ben Zoma. In Revavajame Bartanura, if you know Bartanura, the famous Bartanura wine, Bartanura is actually a city in Italy, uh, 15th century. He, uh, he says on this particular text, and I'll just read this one in English, who learns from everyone? Well, sorry, that's the statement. Who learns from everyone? And here's what he says about it. And even though they, meaning the other people the person's learning from, even though they are lesser than that person, since one isn't standing, since this learner is not standing on their honor, and they learn things from those who are blatantly lesser, for one's wisdom is only for the sake of heaven. This is a good sake of heaven example. And not something which, with which to get glory and splendor. We're welcome us to think about, and we'll do this a little bit later, who are the lesser ones? How often do we say they're lesser? I, got, I want nothing to do with them. They're lesser. I got nothing to learn from them. The Bartanura here, we call them the Bartanura, so we call it in Yeshiva, not Revavajna Bartanura, but the Bartanura, He's saying something that the people that we thought we had nothing to learn from, actually get off your high horse. You have something to learn from them. They would not be created on this earth unless there was something to learn from. So that's the first point about heat lamdu is that we need to learn from everybody. Not B-U-D-D-Y, I just made that up. Not everybody, but in fact, the people who are not our buddies. We have to learn from every, every person, no matter what. Whether they are 
wiser than we are in some sense. Maybe they have titles, maybe they have more years of experience or those who we think are actually, no, they're actually, this is their first day on the job, right? I have something to learn from them. Or they really, and this is, a, this is a, maybe a controversial opinion. They really make me feel uncomfortable. Not like in a, in a dangerous you know, way or a traumatic way, but I disagree with their politics. I think that makes them a bad person. Okay, but what can you learn from them? You don't have to be their best friend, but what can you learn from them? And the point that, that, that the Ali Shore makes, that Rev Woolby makes is that it's not like, oh, I learned how to not be, you know, stingy, or I learned how to not be a racist. No. Ravobi says you have to learn something positive. I really appreciate, I, 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 I think they are disgusting, but boy, do they have charisma. Wow. Like, maybe that's something I should think about is my presentation to other people. Wow. You know, they're, they, they speak out of turn and they're so annoying, but wow, I'm oftentimes I kind of hold my opinions in sometimes and they don't really speak enough. Maybe, maybe I should not do exactly what they do, but at least take, you know, something out of their playbook. Like maybe I should speak a bit more and express myself. So learning something positive from everybody. That's the point. Number one. Point number two is learning, and this is, this is a, perhaps a challenging one for a lot of us, is learning from every text, every text. And here's how he explains it. The student who learns the Talmud, tractate Negaim, Negaim is like about like spots in, in leprosy, right? And, and like, you know, skin disorders, we'll call it skin disorders. The one who learns this tractate in depth and they toil at it, and like there are like a lot of details, which I am not fully conversant in either. And if they look in the decisions of Rambam, Maimonides, in the laws of Negaim, where he actually has a whole section detailing these laws in great detail, when they reach the conclusion of the laws in the Rambam, they will find their ideas burning with flames, a fire on the prohibition of Lashon Hara, evil speech, evil tongue, gossip. And it, and it is as though the blinds were torn from their eyes and they are compelled to realize that the entire tractate in truth deals with dun, da, 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 the laws of Lashon Hara. And this student will be devastated. How, how they, you know, how, how is it that with all the development of the tractate, how did I not, how did I not see it? How did they not sense that they were busy with the severity of the law of Lashon Hara the whole time? So imagine this. And, I, and I'll say, I have a teacher. Um, I remember he would tell me, you know, oh, you know, even if I was studying a hard tractate of Talmud, he would say, but like, you have to remember, like, this is all God's word. Like, this should, this should bring you joy. Um, I, found that, I found that difficult. I mean, I like the idea. I like the idea. Oh, if only I could see it that way. Um, maybe, maybe I could believe it, but like, can I feel it? Um, didn't speak to me. Didn't speak to me. The Rambam does this ama amazing favor here, which tells, he's actually giving it away. He's saying all of these details and these things which felt irrelevant or, you know, very, I don't know. Um, it's a lot of depth. Like all those things actually were meant to teach you a lesson. Teach us a lesson about Lashon Hara. And yeah, then you can go, oh, but, oh that makes sense. Like, because I know Miriam, right? Miriam in Sarat and in leprosy and in Lashon Hara. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it now. But when we're in the middle of it, it's oftentimes hard to see. And so I think he's suggesting we take off those blinders. We're not always going to get the hint that the Rambam gives us that actually this is meant to teach us a, a moral lesson, something about ethics, not merely about checking for spots and, and who has this skin disorder and that disorder. What if in every text we learned, we tried, we even manufactured meaning. And I promise you, every rabbi does it, right? Take a text, you have to make some meaning of it. That's what the rabbi does. Rabbi's like, well, I have this Parsha. All right, well, let me, let me really dig deep because it doesn't seem so relevant, but I'm going to find something. Um, that's what he's asking us as individuals to do as well, to actually look at texts 
and try and see beyond the occasional dryness, occasional, frequent, depends what your orientation is, and to actually say, you know what, these rabbis who wrote this, or these sages, right, or these, or these female scholars who wrote this, they didn't just write this for nothing. They're trying to teach me a lesson here. What is it? Um, the way that, that um, one person expressed to me, they said in high school, they were told, you don't have to see Chazal, the stages, the blessed memory of the Talmud. You don't have to see them as smarter than you, but you do need to see them as as smart as you. I thought that was very wise um, to really give them the benefit of the doubt. Another, another Musar Mida is that this text is in front of me. They're not just trying to bore me. They're trying to do something here deeper. What is it? How can I get there? Just a little example is one of the first halachot, one of the first laws in the Shulchan Aruch. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, the 16th century code of law. Um, one should put on the right shoe first and not fasten it. Then after that, put on the left one and fasten it. In return, the, in return and fasten the right one. And the Ramah, from Moshe Israelis, the, the, uh, the Ashkenazi uh, you know, gloss says, and in the case of our shoes, which do not have fastening, one puts the right shoe on first. Okay. Sounds a little, I mean, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. Okay, uh, what? What's going on here? Why is he telling me this? Why do I have to know how to put on my shoes? On one level, I, I think this is, a, this is a great example um, of being able to use Hitlam Duda in a text. Let me look really deeply. I don't know if this is what the, the rabbis intended, but there are concepts of left and right in Judaism, right? The right hand, the right side is the strong side. Pretty sure the right side is the strong side. Hey, the right side of God. Let's go with the right side of me for now. The right side is the strong side. So when I put my right shoe on first and I don't fasten it, I'm putting my best foot forward. I'm putting my best foot forward. Literally, I'm putting my best foot forward. And I'm not going to fasten it yet because there's still, because I'm not, I'm not fully complete, right? I do have something very strong, but I still have to work. You know, I have another foot, which is not my best foot. And I should remember that and make sure that can, you know, keep up as well. So there's something to putting our best foot forward. Maybe there's an idea of, of chesed and gavura. Chesed and gavura. One is, you know, the left side and the right side. I, I can't even remember. I think the left side is gavura and the right side is chesed. Maybe vice versa, but I would prefer it be the other way, right? Maybe that's telling us we have to balance in certain sense chesed and gavura of kindness and, and um, I wouldn't call it stubbornness, but, but firmness, right? Which one do we start with? Which one needs more taming? Another way we could explain it um, is the fact that, wow, I'm taking this dirty thing, a shoe, and I'm imbuing holiness in it. Wow, that's our calling in life, is to make the mundane holy. That's what this halacha is doing. This is what it's trying to teach us, trying to teach us that even our shoes, by ritualizing how we put them on, we're actually elevating a part of the world. So we said Hilam Dud is about learning from every text. We said it's about lear lear learning from every person. And then lastly, it's learning everywhere. Um, let's just, um, there are some beautiful, we're going to skip it, but you have the document here um, about, uh, from Simcha Zizel Ziv, Chochma Musar, about his text, about sort of our mindset when we see ourselves, like if you, um, I'll, just, I'll just say it outside as it were, meaning not inside the text. Um, if you are somebody who just got a new car, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing that car everywhere, right? If you are, um, you know, somebody who's in the, you know, in the, in, in the market for, for a house, um, you're going to start looking at houses everywhere you go, right? Just like noticing things. Um, if you um, work in finance, right? Things related to money might always stand out and you might you know, be particularly sensitive to that. Um, he suggests um, that we become essentially, I don't know if the right word is ubermensch, um, but basically merchants of the world, that we essentially dabble in everything, meaning I am not going to only see the roof. I'm not only going to see cars like mine. I want to fully open myself to learn about everything and not just the things that interest me. And, and actually that's one way when I went to rabbinical school, one of my teachers, uh, the, the, the Columbia Hillel rabbi uh, told me, listen, I recommend you go to rabbinical school. This is how I remember it. I recommend you go to rabbinical school 
because you are going to learn things that you don't want to learn. And that will make you a better rabbi and a more knowledgeable person in general. And that was very valuable information for me, even though I did study things that didn't particularly interest me. Um, sometimes that's how we, we grow. If we just study the things that interest us, um, you know, it's almost like having a conversation with yourself or echo chamber, I guess you could say. Um, and on that note about learning sort of not all, like, well, I guess I didn't quite make the point about learning everywhere in this one, but I will in the next source, um, which is from the Talmud, uh, which says in, in, in Tractate Eruvin, if the Torah had not been given, we could learn modesty from a cat, not stealing from ants, fidelity from a pigeon, and proper sexual relations from a rooster. Um, very curious what Esther Perel would say about that. Who appeases its partner before engaging in sexual relations. So Torah is basically saying, not only do we learn from every, every person and every text, but even from animals, and I would say more broadly, from nature. From nature. I can look at a tree. I can look at the, I can actually learn something from trees. You probably know this, but trees talk to each other underground. There's a whole network of roots. They feed each other. They even feed the stumps. Even once the, even once the tree has been chopped down, they still take care of each other. What it, would it look like in a world, and this is from Rabbi Yosef Levine in, in the Jewish Center in New York, what would it look like to be in a world where even the stumps, the people we sort of overlook, the people who are like basically dead to us or have sort of outlived their purpose as far as we need them, what would it look like to still feed them nutrients, to still support them? Um, we can learn from trees. We can learn a heck of a lot from trees. We can learn from animals. Um, that's the point here, that no matter where you are, you can learn something. As long as we have that mindset of here's what I'm trying to do. I want to be curious. It's a beautiful teaching. He has uh, Ali Shore. He says, we can learn from thieves. We can learn from robbers. Why? How do, what do we learn from robbers? They said, well, robbers have a great work ethic, very great work ethic. Not, not, not ethical work, but work ethic. They work late into the night, right? They sacrifice sleep. They're going late into the night, you know, doing their stealing. And then they actually, you know, they bought this really expensive thing. They could sell it for market price, but no, they sell on the black market for much cheaper. I don't know if it's a black market, but they sell it for cheaper the next day. That's two things to learn from them. Wow, like I like we're working in the night. That's a great thing, you know, giving people good prices and, and you know a fair deal, especially when I didn't deserve it. That's also great. And even the the, the concept of thick as thieves, the expression thick as thieves. He says, you know, and, and there's a good chevra, there's a good chevra shaft, a good chevra of of uh, of thieves. We can learn from them, and we can learn from children. Why do we learn from children? We learn from children because they cry when they need something. They cry when they need something. How often do we cry when we need something? Sometimes we cry when it's too late, but when they need something and they want something, they make their desires known. They're very authentic. We can learn from children too. So we've done a lot today. We've learned about the history, a little bit about Musar, uh, sort of like the why Musar um, and how Musar can, can sort of, I think, be a corrective um, for strict uh, you know, Torah study. Um, the issue that, that, that we're dealing with now as a group is that Musar is not it's, not, it's not a course of study, it's a course of practice. Um, and given the format of where we are, it's very hard to do that. Um, so what I'm hoping in our time together is that we will learn some texts that inspire. I wanna learn together texts that inspire um, you on your own to go out and figure out how to work on these traits. And of course, I can give you resources for that and, and, and tactics. You know that I myself, you know, either do or struggle to do, but know that's what we're that's that, that's the Musar calls us to. But also to note that Musar is constantly evolving. Rov Salanter, Rov will be. They did, there wasn't like a. They're not. We're not doing the same regimen they did in the 11th century, right? They adapted to the times. This isn't Halachal and Moshe Sinai here. This is not Torah given directly to, to 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 Moses on Mount Sinai. It's malleable. If there are certain psychological tools or tips that you have, please share them. Um, but however you can find yourself growing um, in these traits inspired by Torah, no matter how you go about doing that, whether it's mantras or journaling or visualizations or CBT or DBT or whatever, that's valid and that's Musar. So um, I just wanna, we'll open up for some reflections, but I wanna charge us all um, in the next week to look at this, look at this, um, look at these, um, these seven 
uh, you know, let's say, I don't know, uh, variables here. Mundane actions, friends, acquaintances, animals, news, family, people I disagree with. Pick one of those and just try once a day to try and learn something. Whatever is, I would say for now, we can go easy, right? Maybe it's about a friend. Meaning think about one friend you have. Think about one friend you have and just notice, like, what do I learn from this friend? If it's an acquaintance, right? What do I learn from the, from the person at the grocery store? If it's about family, how often do I really try to understand what my family's going through versus just, you know, being habituated to it? What do I learn about myself even through, you know, heat lamdut with family? And then thinking about people I disagree with, that's the hardest one, but I think the most powerful one and the one that we need most right now, which is I disagree with this person. I don't like them. I'd rather not them not be in my life so much, but they're here. What can I learn from them? Um, that's what I want us to, to think about. Again, practice heat lamdut to think about um, you can write it down. You can just meditate and think about it and visualize learning something from someone, something, some text. Pick one. And, uh, and I hope next week, if you're here, um, that we'll have some time to actually reflect on that. Um, and last but not least, again, the idea of uncertainty. The idea of uncertainty to get used to saying, in my humble opinion, um, to say, which is the way that the most teshuvo, most uh, Jewish you know, responsa, uh, begin in my humble opinion, no matter how you know learned this person is, in my humble opinion, in my humble opinion, in my humble opinion, we should get used to doing that um, and to being curious, to being curious and open and recognizing that there's a lot that we don't know and that there's a lot we can learn. Um, and that provides um, a lot of opportunities for us, I think, not only to become better people, to, but to have better relationships uh, with people we love and people we don't love. So let me stop there. Um, and beautiful. See- Beautiful. So friends, um, normally we'll have about 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes for questions, thoughts, reflections. But given that today we had uh, to introduce the series in addition to launching into the first uh, trait here, uh, I apologize that we only have about three to five minutes left here. But we would love to hear one or two people who have questions or thoughts. uh, If you'd like to unmute yourself and jump in. Hi, this is Alex from Mexico over in Las Vegas. And uh, one of the things that stands out to me sort of is the recognition that uh, everything we know in life is the result of somebody else teaching us. We are not born with the knowledge and skills that we have. And I feel like that really plays into sort of this when we really reflect on it, that uh, we are really the benefit the beneficiary of so much kindness in the world. And I find that to be a very good practice in changing how I interact and engage with people as well. So thank you for sharing these teachings today. Thank you. And I, I think that goes to the, to the idea of Musar as being something that's, that's given as well, uh, the, the passive, that's something I receive as well. Yeah. Great, someone else? I'll share. Um, I never knew that about trees, that they talk to each other and they take care of each other. Oh, that's kind of cool. You know, like The Giving Tree, you know, that book, you know, which is a childhood favorite of so many. Um, Just something to think about. Awesome. Time Time for one more. Thank you, Randy. I see people chatting also. Great. So uh, Rabbi Lauren, do you want to share anything else uh, previewing what's happening in the next nine sessions to close us out? And I, I'll, I'll, I'll share what's happening in the next session. Um, we're going to jump to the, to the first trait, um, which oftentimes is associated with Musar, which is humility, um, which is not necessarily uh, what we would have thought it would be. Um, but we're similarly going to go through the exercise of looking at, you know, what does our tradition say about, about this trait? Who was humble? What can we learn from them? Um, and, and, you know, discuss at the end, we'll have some time uh, to discuss as well our own experiences um, and challenges with humility. Beautiful. Friends, I can't think of anything more important in our, in our time than to engage in the work of Musar, of being introspective and learning and growing, something that all of us can do in our own ways. Uh, please feel free to reach out. Uh, Rabbi Berman said he has additional resources. Um, if the, there are ways we can help guide this practice for you 
and as always, give us feedback on, uh, on your learning experience. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Rabbi Berman. Thank you all of us for joining. And we'll see you at the same time uh, next Thursday, one o'clock Pacific, four o'clock Eastern, next Thursday for this 10-part series. Have a wonderful day.